Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 87 for Saturday, December 18th, 2021. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney, and joining me as always is... Captain Sabriel Mastin, who never knows how you're going to segue into my introduction. <laughs> I think you're expecting more variety than there actually is. This week out is different just because you never know what to expect. Uh, yes, let's go with that. So, <laughs> today we're so, going to talk about the examples. Yes, this is Discovery, Season 4, Episode 5, The Examples. Do you happen to recall off the top of your head how many episodes there are this season? Uh, I think it's roughly 10. I just looked it up on Memory Alpha. It claims to be 13 episodes. Cool. The reason I ask is I was trying to figure out if we were halfway through the season or not. And apparently a week and a half from now or so, we will be halfway through. (laughs) <laughs> so, so we are we are in episode five, and they have finally remembered that there is this galaxy-threatening anomaly out there. I don't think they ever forgot. <laughs> I know, I know, but the last two weeks, the DMA was not present on screen, and this week it was, and they were dealing really directly with the ramifications of its imminent threat. Yeah, we had to go rescue some prisoners. We had to go rescue an Akali colony yakali being a reference to enterprise oh really yeah it was the first pre-warp civilization that uh the enterprise nx01 came across oh did you say pre-warp yes so now 900 years later they are warp yes huh well it's about time slow pokes (laughs) way to get with the program honestly uh you were giving uh, the Kelpians crap about having technology so soon. And, you know, I don't think we brought it up then. I mean, they had the Ba'ul who were space traveling, so it makes total sense the Kelpians are space traveling. I suppose, but they, they certainly acclimated to the technology rather quickly. That was 900 years. It's, think 900 years from uh, now. Like, uh, uh, oh. 1100. Oh, oh no. I, I don't object to the Kelpians developing spacefaring technology in the time between when Discovery jumped to the future. I thought at the end of season two, where they went from being a fearful species to suddenly they're evolved, and now they're piloting these little skimmers and helping the Discovery fight off control. I thought that was a dramatic leap. I don't remember them helping in season two. Wow, it's been a while since I've oh, seen yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That that was the clue that led Spock to say, Burnham, you need to go back to the past and create the present that is occurring right now. The reason you made the Kelpians evolve was that they could be here right now. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a whole causality loop. Huh. Saru's sister showed up, and he's like, you're in space? She's like, yeah, we learned how. We're here to help. We got the signal that you sent out. Huh. Wow. Yeah, Uh, I guess this is showing some... You know, Star Trek is different. (laughs) I mean... I I don't remember this at all. To be fair to you, Bree, it was 900 years ago. Uh, yeah, let's go with that. Uh, you can't, can't let's be talk about the examples, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, so... The, I got a sidetrack because of the Akali. <laughs> this is a weird-looking colony. It's like some asteroid M with all these cables floating out of it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of neat. I, I, I mean, I thought at first it was going to be a planet that they were arriving at, but instead, I guess it was some sort of a... M-class asteroid? Because clearly it had an atmosphere. Uh, It didn't look like they were in some sort of a bubble. They had bubbles. They had space bubbles. And then they had buildings within the bubbles? And I think they had... Everything was connected. I think they had... I think they had tubes and connectors. And I mean, when you've got teletransporters that can just pop you around the ship, I'm sure it's no big deal. Huh. So those scorpions that end up being landmines, they originally expected that they were indigenous creatures to this asteroid? Uh, no, they said that Emerald Chain would make creatures look biological, or these mines look biological. Uh, oh. They're actually robots. R- right, right. But at, when before they realized that they were landmines, they thought they were organic. And then they said, wait yeah. a minute, it's, it's moving too precisely. So right. I'm just surprised that they would think that there would be an actual scorpion on this planet. 
Oh, Hang no, on. no. I think Burnham said they brought him with or something like that. Okay. I yeah. I seem to recall her saying something, but I didn't really pay attention because I didn't know at the moment it would be important. Well, like, we're not so, really focusing on anything in particular here in this episode, <laughs> and I think... Hmm. Uh, you think we're missing the point? I, th- I think we are. We haven't really talked about the episode yet. <laughs> okay. So, the, the DMA is threatening this colony, and Burnham and the Discovery leap in to coordinate the rescue efforts. And here's my first objection to this episode. We're going to start on negative point. She volunteers to lead the evacuation effort. And then she says, I'm going to go down to the planet to save these six people while I designate Reese to save the other thousand. That does not seem responsible. And it feels like her number one should have said, Captain, I protest. You should remain on board. Uh, there was some weirdness there. Like um, Reese volunteered and she's like, cool. That lets me do my plot point. And that'll let Saru do his plot point. That's perfect. Thanks, Reese. Um, but it was a little weird. Uh, or at least it's not standard operating procedure from what we've seen in Star Trek before. But apparently Reese knew what he was doing. From a narrative perspective, I totally get why it happened. As you just said, it required Burnham to be available to have her plot point. You know, so I'm not I'm not criticizing the writers for why this happened, but from an in-universe explanation, you would rarely see this, uh, I feel like. You know, you know. On Star Trek, maybe we wouldn't normally see it. We'd see, like, Riker taking command. But if Reese has, like, specialization in this, you get your specialists to help out do that. So it, I can logic it to make sense. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, you put who's good at what they do. And Reese but is also, good at coordinating efforts, apparently. And certainly Picard went on his fair share of away missions back on Next Generation, but rarely without anybody else from Starfleet. And that's what Burnham was doing. Yeah. I would be curious to know to what degree Book is expected to follow Starfleet protocol when he himself is on a Starfleet. Like, she can't order him to do anything, really. Uh, no, but uh, they're, they're a pair. I don't know. Right. And that would be awkward if she had to pull that rank on him. To so be like, hey, I know I'm your girlfriend, but I'm also your captain. I mean, they already kind of tried to do that. He's like, what are you going to do? Stop me? Right. Uh, when he was going to go to the DMA earlier. But, um... What do you think of the whole prisoner arc? Uh, somewhat predictable, and I don't mean that as a negative. Uh, but like when she said to the four prisoners, "I need you to say that you want your federation. I want your you want your case reviewed by the federation." And three of them said, "Yes, yes, yes." And the fourth one said, "Then I think we're done here." I'm like, "That's not a yes." Yep, that's obvious. He had some, he had more plot point to tell. Um, yeah, it. I thought. <laughs> I don't say weak. It was just a part of the story. Um, like, what does it push narratively for our characters? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, that's kind of what these scenes are for. Every predicament is what is this pushing for? Or it's, you know, meant to, like, why are we filming this? And uh, I don't know how to answer that in this case. Like, Burnham acted like Burnham book was there to support her um i mean he was having troubles like with the dma existing you know doing his thing and we have to help people kind of thing but did it really push him anywhere uh it helped connect the akali um uh memory device the family tree thing but that's not really part of the unless it has some really weird part of the plot I don't know if this whole section actually advanced anything for Burnham or Book. Kind of like how in season two, when we saw the sphere data, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then that ended up being the reason they went to the future and why they now have Zora. Like, that was big. Yeah. So you can't always always know it's going to be big. I don't think it was the memory sphere. But for me, what this moved was last week, we saw Book and Culber both working through some issues kind of together. And this week, we saw evidence that both of them sort of have a a savior complex where Mm -hmm. Book wants to not let anybody else die as a result of the DMA. He wants to prevent what happened to his planet from happening to anybody else. And he really struggled with Burnham's decision. When they beamed back to the bridge of the Discovery, he immediately walked off. Yeah. And, and And I think that is laying the seeds of some 
conflict, maybe not necessarily romantically, but she is going to have to do some things by the, no pun intended, book that he is going to object to because his goal is to save people. And you can't always do that when you're in the Federation. Sometimes you can't save everybody. Uh, there we go. That's, that's, I mean, that that's it. it this whole section was for him. And we kind of covered it before with like the needs and the many uh, with the Vulcan stuff mm-hmm. uh, coming up. And so there we go. That was a connection. It was all for book. It was, it was character development for book. Although that's interesting about the Vulcan philosophy, the needs of the many, because that again goes back to my argument of why would Burnham go save four, uh, four people, I think, when was, there are all yeah. these other people, six people? Six, uh, four? It doesn't matter. Number yeah. of people. And, but she's also like, we don't leave anyone behind if we can help it. Right. And I'm not objecting to those people being saved. They deserve to, regardless of their crime. Uh, I, I'm not somebody who believes in the death penalty in any circumstance, but I, I still think that it didn't warrant the captain's personal involvement. But that's neither here nor there. I'm we can move just, on. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just Reese's a captain. got this. Uh, Saru's helping. For some reason, we have to solve this DMA thing right next to the warp core with a random scientist right now while we're in the middle of a different emergency. <laughs> that bothered the heck out of me because at one point they said, well, we can get you more energy, but it's from the transporters. And Saru's like, that's not an option. Alternatives? And nobody said, why don't we wait till we're not using the transporters? Yeah. Oh, that was that was so contrived and weird. Like, I mean, yep. Yep. Like, we could have done this somewhere safe, but we did it on Discovery while you're in the middle of a crisis. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, uh, an evacuation should be an all-hands-on-deck procedure. And there is Saru, who's number one, who is in charge of the ship while Burnham is off ship. And he's not paying any attention to the evacuation. Well, I I don't know if it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing, because too many cooks thing. But I do feel, it does feel weird that Saru had no part in it at all <laughs> to me. Yeah. I mean, a thousand um, people, I mean, granted... The Federation was unable to evacuate Romulus before it blew up, and that was millions of people. A thousand is much more manageable, yeah. but it's still a lot of people. And um, I know that it was split across multiple yeah. ships, but how many more people does Discovery now have in their sick bay or in their cargo bay or seeking accommodations or needing to use the food replicators? Uh, yeah, that was an interesting choice, but I think they're just trying to squeeze in on so many stories here for whatever reason. It's very odd. It's not very – doesn't make any sense at all. But I guess here we go. Here we go. Stories. So taking it for what it is. Um, Ruan Tarka. When I first watched this episode, here's our Arisian who's uh, being a total Stamets to Stamets. And, <laughs> That's uh, a good way to put it. <laughs> uh, my first viewing, I hated this character a lot. My second yep. viewing, I'm like, you know what? I still hate you, but uh, I don't hate you as much. I mean, who would use mashed potatoes when you have programmable matter? Uh, Ruan. <laughs> and what is what? I maybe I'm skipping ahead, but what is that stamp on his neck? Is that an emerald chain thing? Yeah, that was okay. So when I first watched this episode, I thought it was an allusion to the next generation. Oh. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. I deleted the tweet because, like, oh no, I don't think so anymore. Um, yeah. it's it's supposed to be referring to the emerald chain little neck thing that they put on last season. That book had on one point two little circular implants. Hmm they were using to um, force people to work and whatnot. And he mentioned that he had a run-in with the Emerald Chain uh, in the Engineering Bay section. Um, and he also works with Aurelio. So, like, he was clearly – he was working with uh, – or being forced to work for the Emerald Chain uh, in the past. Um, what I thought at first was some allusion to the conspiracy bluegill aliens again. Uh, TNG, Who are they? TNG conspiracy episode, first season. A little oh, right, right, right. TNG. Yeah. That's what I figured the tweet you deleted was. Yep. Uh, it's like the bluegills, really? Um, people are quick to point out, like, well, they didn't have the little the bluegill on the back. I'm like, well, you yeah. know, things changed. It's been 900 years. Maybe they hid this, but on second viewing, like, oh, no, it's not that. Or if it is, it's a double double red herring <laughs> yeah i know it's not canon but the ds9 season 8 novels 
address what those things were from conspiracy. Did they? They did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to. It's it's a big spoiler. So if you read the book, so I don't want to say it here, even though the books are about twenty years old. <laughs> um, but if you want the, if you want that spoiler, I can tell you offline. Okay. Uh, but Ruan here, he, yeah, he, he's gonna sign the heck out of the thing right next to, or as close to the warp core as they can, as all Star Trek does. Anything dangerous we do close to the warp core. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Just like in that image you sent me a while back of Jordy and Data testing some weapon right next to the warp core, pointing it at it, even right. Yep. Uh, this, it's a this is fine. It's Star Trek yeah. tradition. Um, um, but this scene, this whole him being here. It gave Stamets some, you know, realization like, oh, <laughs> this is me working with myself. This is what I used to be like, or sometimes I'm still like. Um, mm-hmm. So this guy is incredibly brilliant. He knows more. He's going to be part of the rest of the season. I know it in some capacity anyway, because of the way they set him up when he's talking with Book at the end of the season. Mm. Uh, he's like the end of the episode. Yep, yep, end of the episode. I told you to not say a season. I've heard it both ways. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, he knew it was not the. Uh, what were all the people, the Metrons? Yeah. Uh, who were the people from Arena episode where he, they made Kirk and Gorn fight on Vasquez Rocks? Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew it was not the Nassine, the caretaker aliens. Uh, the Iconians, which apparently there are still some around, uh, as Vance said. I mean, that's always been theorized because we don't know what happened to them. Yeah, but actually to say that there's still some are still around and not just their tech is interesting. Hmm. Um. So he knows more, uh, and he clearly, when Book is, he talks about Book being angry, and he's like, and uh, Ruan Tarka here is talking about how anger is a powerful emotion, and then he goes and rubs his neck, reminding us of the Emerald Chain connection. Hmm. So he may not be in on it all, but he knows something more, and we are going to find out soon. And maybe he wants a hand in it, even if or he wants to use it in some way. He was trying to create. I'm sorry, I'm not giving you any chance to talk. Uh, I'm running. <laughs> I'm just running up everything that's on top of my head. He was trying to create a wormhole right here on Discovery and maybe blow it up with not a care. Yeah, and I'm still not clear how he had such precise schematics for the device that's at the center of the DMA. Mm-hmm. I know Book sort of alluded to that, saying you don't get that close to the cliff unless you know what's over the edge. But uh, it was weird. They're like, hey, we built this device, but we don't know how it works. Let's test it. And I'm like, what? No. I mean, how do you build something and not know what it does? Uh, You know, I'm sure there are examples in humanity that (laughs) are exactly this. You know, he reminds me now as we're talking, a lot of the um, from D Space Nine, the four people that made two appearances on DS9 with Bashir. Um, genetically enhanced. They were augments. The, gen- the four genetically enhanced. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack and Serena and the other two. Um, his like, knowledge kind of started reminding me of that. I don't think there's any connection, but here as we're talking, like, oh man, he has all these plots and theories. He's three steps ahead of everyone else, whether it's correct or not. Uh, who's to say? Um, he's a very brilliant person. Hmm. And yeah, it, I, it it seemed plausible to it didn't seem implausible to me. How about that? That he hmm. was here. I mean, he reminded me of a lot of people, none of whom I like. <laughs> <laughs> I sure. have watched this episode only once. I do not care for this character. I don't think Saru should have yelled back at him and then admitted that it felt good. Because you're just feeding the troll at that point. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Saru lost control, and that was not cool. Uh, also, you said you mentioned the Metreons and the Iconians, and also the Q Continuum, of whom there's been no known word in 600 years. Yeah. And so, th- given that discovery happens quite a while before TNG, like uh, at least 100 years, and they left 900 years, and I think the numbers might need to be fudged a little bit, but you might say that the Q have not been heard from ever since Picard passed away. Yeah, roughly. Uh, the 300 years, is, or excuse me, 600 years is after Picard still, but it seems like Q got bored. Yeah. And Picard was no longer around. 
And the Q that we know, played by John Delancey, is really the only one who seemed ever interested in interfering in humans. Yeah. Well, so just... I think I think once his buddy was gone, I mean, yeah, he showed up on Deep Space Nine once, and he messed around with Captain Janeway a few times, but... You hit me. Uh, the card never hit me. <laughs> by the way, the USS Janeway? Yes, the Janeway is cool. I mean, Kristen Byers, of course, is going to show as many Voyager references as she can. She's a novel writer for Voyager. I, I did think that that was timely, given that Janeway is currently on USS Prodigy. But what I would really like to see is the USS Freeman. You want the Freeman? That would be kind of neat. Because all the live action shows get referenced in Lower Decks, but Lower Decks, as far as I know, has not been referenced in any of the live action shows. Yeah. Maybe it's time that happens. Yeah. I, like We need some more evidence that animated series are canon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. You, you were talking about the scene in Engineering, and mm. you made an observation about this season's first appearance by Tig Notaro. Yeah. At least this one... Okay, so I forgot that she was actually in the opening, um, cold open before, uh, but we'll forget about this. For this scene in particular, with everybody here in, in Engineering Lab, uh, Tig, was, Tig Notaro was not there uh, filming with everyone else. She was clearly, uh, she had clearly filmed at a different time. Um, she was a stand-in, she was doing voiceover, her stand-in actress was way shorter and younger than her. Uh, it and her, all her lines kind of came off as um, uh, dry because no one was responding to her. Hmm. It was it was a little weird. It, it felt weird immediately. And then when I, when I watched for it, like, oh, yeah, Tig Notaro was not there recording with them. Well, it's sort of like that uh, Las Vegas zombie movie that just came out a while ago that she was in. What was called Army of the Dead. Something like and- that, yeah. Yeah, I guess they recast one of the characters. It was some dude who I think got canceled. Mm -hmm. And so they replaced him with her, but they'd already filmed the rest of the movie. So they just shot her separately and digitally inserted her into the film. So she didn't collaborate with any of the actors directly. Yeah. Uh, But in in, the cold opening, it looked like she was definitely with Stamets, uh, which Mm. is possible. Uh, I read just before we started recording that um, her schedule was actually tight. And so they recorded like all her stuff in like a day or two. Hmm. Um, while she was still while she was around, and that just might have meant that she wasn't there when the other actors were able to film. This is also the first time ever her name has been in the opening credits. Yes, that's awesome. Yeah, so she's moving up in the world. It's maybe it's because this episode did not have either uh, Adira or Gray. Yeah. So there was some room in the credits that they needed to fill out. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, but anyway, I'm happy. I like I love Jet. And uh, I wish we had more of her. She didn't contribute as much to this episode as she usually does. And maybe that's because she wasn't actually there, as you noted. Or maybe it's because her snarkiness was so dramatically eclipsed by Ruan Tarka. But I would like to see more of her not only being snarky, but you'll also recall she had that quiet moment with Stamets. Or maybe it was Culber. I already forget. A season or two ago where they talk about finding your partner and how much it means to hold on to them. Yeah. And I like um, I like when she is sincere too. For sure. Uh no if she would have been there, the whole scene with Ruan would have felt way different because she does go against the snark very well. She countered Stamet's snark so well, and she would have no problem countering Ruan Tarka's snark either. Right. Uh, they just didn't get the opportunity because of filming restrictions. That's a bummer. Yeah, as you point out, it may have been not only her schedule, but also the fact that she is a cancer survivor and thus may be exceptionally cautious around COVID. Yeah, we talked about that yesterday uh, uh, off air, and it turned out it was impossibly that, but it probably it was apparently more her schedule. Oh, okay. That they I really wanted know. to get her in there. They want to get her in as much as they can, but she mm-hmm. was only available for a limited time. But anyway, uh, I love her, and the scene is cool. We tried to build a wormhole on Discovery during a crisis. I don't know if we as... Oh, go ahead. And that is the closest that Stamets has ever come to killing everybody. And that's saying a lot. And I'm not just saying that to be funny. I'm saying it's because I hope Stamets understands the severity of what he almost did. Like he kept saying, Captain, or I can control it. We have to do this. And he almost didn't. Like if Saru hadn't pulled the kill switch, I don't think there would be any more discovery to watch. Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, the whole tension here 
in engineering lab uh, did nothing for me. I didn't feel tense at all. Uh, Zora's counting down, uh, saying like, oh, 5%, 4%, whatever like that, did nothing for me. I did not feel the urgency at all. And why is that? I don't know. They, they just failed that. Uh, I did not feel like we are in danger. It's like, oh, hmm. no. <laughs> it didn't well, work I'm for sure, me. I'm sure you knew that they would be fine. I mean, on a level, but there's, you know, a lot of times in TV, you can you can uh, put aside that for a minute and get really into caught up in the moment and caught up in the scene. Mm. And that didn't happen for me at all. Um, I think I think the most caught up, and this is a huge tangent that I've ever been in an in Star Trek, and you and I probably talked about this on Polygamer four years ago, was in Star Trek Beyond, where they find that really old starship and they need to give it a jump start by pushing it off a cliff. The theater in which I first saw that movie, the audio wasn't great, and I actually missed the dialogue about how they needed to do a, a gravity assisted jump start, uh-huh. and so I didn't understand what was happening. All oh, I no. saw was that that they were plummeting. And then they fall below the tree line. And I actually like hollered in the theater. I was like, <laughs> oh, oh. And the person next to me thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, my, my friend Sheppy, who I went to the movies with. And everybody after the movie was like, Ken, are you okay? I was like, I'm sorry. I just, I didn't know what was going to happen to the ship. <laughs> but see so, how easy it is to get into it. Yeah, so on one end of the spectrum, there's that. On the other end, there's this episode of Star Trek. Uh-huh. And so it did nothing for me. Oh, well. Mm. Uh, I was like, okay, yep. Suru's got this. I don't I don't feel in danger at all. Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny. I really like this episode. But as we're talking, it feels like I feel like I'm down on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you like about it then? Uh, I like Culber's part. I even like Ruan. I even like Ruan Tarka's parts. I just, or like the parts of the, his scenes. It just, uh, I feel like I'm talking down on the whole episode. <laughs> well, let's talk about Culber and Kovich. And apparently you're right. Kovich can be anywhere and do anything. Apparently. I mean, I also talked last week about, uh, or whatever it was recently, who helps the helpers. And here we still we see Culber. It's like, oh, God, I need a break. and But he won't let himself take one. Funny that he thought to reach out to Kovic. I know that they explained that, well, Kovic was helpful to Empress Georgiou last season, but I guess if you are in, stranded in the future and you need an outside perspective from somebody who is not potentially one of your patients on your ship and you don't know that many people, well, who are you going to call? Like Admiral Vance? No. Who's, who's uh, a character we've had on the show I can call? Uh, <laughs> right. But, and then people would know. But also, he Kovic is like, you need someone who can... Oh, with brutal honesty, don't you? Yeah. Uh, and so, like, again, a situation where it felt weird to call him up, but I'm glad it was him. Yeah, because he had some remarkable insights that I think all hit their mark. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, if you if you don't justify your re-existence, it's a big middle finger to anybody who's ever lost anyone, which is everyone. <sighs> yeah, that's uh, good shit. <laughs> that's uh, good stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I think about, too. Not because I have been resurrected, but because, you know, like this year will be my sixth Christmas without my dad. And it'll be my mom's sixth Christmas without my dad. And she is also now four years older than he ever was. And on one hand, like she is immensely depressed to not have him in her life anymore. But another way to look at it is she's had four Christmases that he never got. Like every Christmas without him in a way is a gift because you get something that he never did. And so how do you, and I don't mean to pick on my mom, but that's just the most concrete example I have of the best way to honor the dead is to live. And Culber seems to almost be taking that to an extreme. Yeah. So, uh, so, like, we saw some of this on Voyager with Balana, where she went skydiving without the safeties on. Neelix, too. Remind me. Uh, he was dead, and they brought him back with Borg technology. Oh, that's right. And he found out that there was no afterlife. Mm-hmm. At least so he thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's hard. He, he was expecting to see all his loved ones, and he saw nothing. So, yeah, I mean, th- whether or not, whether you are living your first life or your second it's it's really hard to be present and to 
respond to the pain that you're experiencing in a way that is constructive for yourself. You know, Culber is helping a lot of other people, but again, to your point, who helps the helpers? And in this case, the answer is Kovic, but I don't think 10 minutes with Kovic is a cure-all. Uh, I don't know if it's meant to be. It's meant to be a kickstart. Sometimes right, you right. just need someone to tell you what you already know. And um, I think that was probably the case here. Since like he, I mean, Kov- or Kovic even said, like, you are, he already knows like, you need a break. You already know that. Yep. Um, One thing that Discovery is doing really well is long-term repercussions for the characters. Now, Deep Space Nine was the first Star Trek series to have serial stories. And yet, if you look at the episode, I think it was called Hard Time, where O'Brien served 30 years in a mental prison, that episode, like he had significant repercussions from that time in prison through over the course of that episode. In my opinion, we didn't see a lot of that in future episodes. I feel like after that episode, it was sort of a reset button for O'Brien. Oh, that happened all the time, especially to O'Brien. Um, right. Where, or in Star Trek period, people go through these traumatic events and the end of the episode is the end of we ever hear of it. The reason I remember the hard time episode specifically is because I remember reading an interview, some like maybe on StarTrek.com back when that episode aired. And they said that we were going to see repercussions from that episode in O'Brien mm-hmm. for the rest of the series. Like they specifically called that out and I never saw it. Never saw it. Nope. So whereas here we have Kohlberg, he came back to life two seasons ago. That was the second season. We're now in the fourth season and he's still dealing with that crap. That I think is much more realistic and much more interesting. Agreed. Agreed. And also led to him having a little sweet moment of his husband and him in bed talking about, how, like, we solved all these problems that we can't figure our own shit out. <laughs> his, quote, his exact quote. Okay, you know, I love to talk about the things in, this, in these episodes that pissed me off. There was something in that episode that really pissed me off, which was before they get into bed, Stamets takes the extra pillows and puts them somewhere else. Why do so many beds have extra pillows? Beds and couches, that's what they're for. What do you do with the cushions? You move them to the side. You move them, get rid of them. Like I was staying at my cousin's house a few months ago and their guest room, it had six pillows on the bed and I needed anywhere from one to two. So I just like made this stack of pillows on the dresser and now I can't put anything on the dresser because there are pillows on it. I'm like, okay, it's decorative, but that's not what beds are for. Have you ever seen the TV show Coupling? Never heard of it. Uh, It's a UK show. Um, early mid two thousands, um, six people, um, couples of various things. It was kind of like, um, friends, but edgy. It, it doesn't hold up as much as it did back then, but there was a whole scene where Steve, the main character is having a huge conniption over the, what do you do with cushions? You move them to the side. Like, what are they for? <laughs> They're useless. Yep. <laughs> Well, apparently that's me because I'm really distraught that in the 32nd century, we still haven't solved this problem. <laughs> I, I thought humanity had evolved beyond such things. <laughs> Maybe because they come from 900 years in the past, they haven't evolved beyond extra pillows yet. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <sighs> that wasn't even in my notes. Like, I didn't write this down because apparently I didn't have to. It just bothers me that much. I mean, it's like me and holographic displays. Uh, no, I think this is worse. <laughs> <laughs> But it did. They liked the sweet scene between the two. Yes, yes, I liked that. Culber said to Kovich, "I'm struggling." Like that is a hard word to say. When I mean, it's easy to pronounce, but it's a it's hard to admit <laughs> to end to, to anybody because sometimes the only way to admit a truth to yourself is to say it to somebody else first. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that, I mean, that's the whole idea behind the website Post Secret. And so here is Culber saying, I'm struggling. And I, I hope that I, this isn't an issue that I think necessarily needs a pat resolution and one that he'll find, but it needs to become something he can learn to live with. And I hope we see some evolution in that respect. I mean, I think we're going to. Uh, I mean, yeah. Culber here, or here's where Stamets telling his husband, like, you know what? <laughs> I had to deal with someone like me. And no. and then here's where Colbert is talking about how, you know, like, yeah, I realize I have some problems too. Um, like, just have a little moment where they're talking about 
uh, their troubles together. And it's nice to see uh, just a couple having an okay couple moment, just talking. Like, it doesn't happen yeah. too much in Star Trek, to be honest. It's true. I mean, we um, see it more with Burnham and Book. Yep. But overall, there's just... We don't. We have not seen it that much. Maybe between O'Brien and Bashir, a couple's moment there. Oh, <laughs> that's one of my favorite moments in all of Star Trek. <laughs> that one moment when they're stuck in William Sadler's mind. It's good stuff. What was the name of that character? Uh, Sloan. That's it. Yeah, Sloan. For some reason, even though I love him in DS9, I always think of him as the villain from Die Hard 2. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I have a couple of random notes about this episode. One is we are seeing more of Lieutenant Christopher on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Even it's like weird reactions like, oh, Ruan Tarka's on the bridge. What? <laughs> it <was> so <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was a little odd that people were surprised by that, I guess. Because like, have we heard this name before? Uh, no, <laughs> not before this episode. Okay, but apparently everybody on the bridge has. Uh, let's see. Also, that ancestral orb at the end of the episode... If I was that woman whose father had been murdered 30 years earlier and I got that orb back, I would have started crying. I would have fallen to my knees and started bawling my eyes out. Uh huh. I just thought that her reaction was rather subdued given the circumstances. But then again, her she just lost her entire colony. So maybe she had other things on her mind. Uh, also... That orb, she, and like the guy who killed her father said, I not only took that girl's future, I took her past as well. And then she gets the orb back and she turns it on. And I'm like, wait a minute. This orb is ancestry.com. You didn't have a backup of this anywhere? Really? I'm like, I thought the orb was going to be a little bit more profound than just, here's a tree, put your name on it. Like, that's a second grade homework assignment. <laughs> Um, you know, different cultures think about backups differently. Even Odo brings that up. <laughs> what did Odo uh, say? There's one scene where he's talking about how he's pretty sure humans only evolve like larger and larger. Something about larger hard drives just so they can store more information. Uh, he doesn't, and he doesn't see why they do that. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, just different priorities. I suppose, but I, it also made me wonder. So let's say you're a dad. And you have three kids. Do you only have one orb in the whole family that you pass on to them? Or do I, you make two clones and each kid gets an orb? I'm not an expert on a colleague culture, sorry. <laughs> and, and also, like, if each kid gets a tree, do they sync up with each other? So that as you have kids and your, sis- your siblings have your own nieces and nephews, do they all get added to the same tree? Like, is there a canonical tree? You should write some Akali fanfic. Genealogy is not my idea of fanfic, but maybe for somebody else it is. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that is it for my notes, except for one thing. Uh, Actually, two more things. Two more things. So I usually skip the last time on Star Trek Discovery. Uh, as you and I have discussed, I don't like that it hints at what's going to be in the next episode of, that we're about to watch or who's going to be in it. So I usually skip ahead one minute. That's about how long these things take. This week, it was only half a minute. It was a lot shorter than usual. Yeah, I don't know what I missed because I didn't go back and watch it later. But just uh, it was a short recap. And also, toward the end of the episode, nobody seems freaked out about the fact that not only is the Discovery computer evolving sentience, but also emotions. Uh, I think that's... No, I mean, freaked out. I don't know. How do you react? They already know Zora is getting an intelligence. And, and I think that's one like, hmm, we're going to put this on the back burner for now. Uh, uh, but we'll figure this out in the future because it's going to come up again. Uh, oh, all of a sudden, oh. Zora has feelings. Oh, oh yeah. Like, I am secure in this evolution because we have an idea of where it leads and it seems to not be a bad place but i have to wonder two things one does nobody on discovery know how hard it is for artificial intelligence to have emotions given that it never happened to data uh and two originally i was going to ask has nobody ever seen 2001 a space odyssey on Star Trek Discovery, especially like Enterprise. They loved watching their old movies. But also, the second season of Discovery was all about an AI that wanted to wipe out all life using 
data in the sphere. And now here's discovery using data in the sphere to evolve artificial intelligence. And they're not concerned about a, a recurrence of control. All right, slow down there. You're making a lot of assumptions here. Um, all right, first one, that no one is concerned about this. We weren't given time to investigate that. It was the end of the episode. Uh, Burnham was shocked. Like, you're experiencing emotions? And she's like, yeah, it's a new thing. Okay. Kind of, Michael's eye says it all. It's like, okay. Um, uh, two, Discovery is not evolving the AI, or, or the crew is not doing it. Uh, the ship is doing it itself. And they seem to trust oh. the sphere data more than... Uh, Section 31 developed AI. I mean, I, I understand that the evolution of Zora is not being directed by humanity, but control also evolved beyond the constraints of what Section 31 defined. Mm-hmm. Well, really, we don't know that they're not concerned because they didn't have enough time in the episode. That's a future problem. That is a very valid point, and I will totally grant you that. I am willing to see where things go. My current concerns are based solely on the limited data available in this episode. Discovery is very good at trying to give you the little bits with no way to actually extrapolate them. <laughs> they, oh, they that doesn't all. stop me, though. It doesn't no, I'm stop say, me. I'm just saying in general. They did that yes. all last season. Uh, looks like they're kind of doing that here again. They're very good at uh, not giving you enough information to even put p- things together. You know, anytime you say last season, I keep thinking about the Red Angel. I just, I kind of forget that the third season happened. <laughs> I, I don't know why. Like, oh yeah, there was a burn. That's right. Uh-huh. Anyway, go on. Uh, any any other assumptions that uh, I need to, to be disputed? I mean, I just slow down. <laughs> <laughs> but why? <laughs> uh, it's going to be a thing. Uh, interesting. I'm interested to see if they connect it to the little short truck with Zora or not. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that my current reactions are preventing me from having different future reactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I can't – well, I mean, the whole purpose of science fiction is to take what is now and extrapolate it into the future. And so I am writing my own science fiction based on Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 5. <laughs> A few things. Let's see. I wrote my other notes. Uh, our colleague says, thank, thank Drillin you're here. Drillin was established as the Akali Afterlife leader. In Enterprise. Thank you. I meant to look that up. Um, let's see. I wrote down the experiments have to be done as close to the warp core as possible. Uh, oh, the DMA moved a thousand light years. So now the crew discovered what we already know, that it's artificial. You know what? That is a very good point, which is we've been waiting all four episodes for them to figure it out. And I kind of feel like the DMA got tired of waiting for them to figure out. So it's just like, look, let me show you how artificial I am. <laughs> like in the first two minutes of the episode, they figured out what we've been waiting all season for them to figure out. And also this is something I am definitely not making any conclusions about yet because I admit that I don't have enough information, but I feel like it was to the creator of the DMA's benefit for the Federation to think it was a natural phenomenon. And so for the creator, if there is one, to tip its hat so obviously, it must have done so for a very important reason. And so Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know what was so important that warranted moving the DMA a thousand light years. We don't know yet. We haven't seen that, but I'm eager to find out. Why I am partially wondering if um, Tarka was trying to uh he already had the schematics maybe there's a reason he was trying to create a second wormhole and not just artificial you know not just a little experiment in the lab no idea if it's connected or not but there's a weird thread there maybe the only way to fight a dma is with a dma yeah uh maybe he was going to try to do an anti-dma uh like um, well kind of like the red wormhole i don't know if you've read those ds9 novels i remember it yes I've not read it, but I've heard of it in the beta canon. Yeah, the Pa Wraiths had their own celestial temple. Uh, speaking of memory alpha. Yes. Um, there's a little map uh, at the beginning in the te- opening teaser where uh, Stamets and Jet are looking at a map. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to see a whole bunch of Starfleet or Star Trek references in this little map, including Zetar and memory alpha, which were in the episode The Lights of Zetar. Memory alpha huh. is the Federation's like database planet. Hmm. I'm going to see the Nobula, Wolf 359, Akali, uh, an episode in the 
the Romulan Empire, or it used to be, uh, and a whole bunch more. There's like tons of references in that little map. If you want to sit there and look at Memory Alpha uh, on the internet and look up Memory Alpha, the place, uh, you can have a good little five minute, ten minutes here of looking up actual locations that have popped up in Star Trek before. You just reminded me. I am currently reading the Andy Weir novel Project Hail Mary. You may you may know him as the author of The Martian with yeah. Matt Damon. Matt uh, Damon. And- you okay there? Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, he also wrote Artemis. So this is, I believe, his third novel. At one point, uh, it is set in modern day Earth. And it, they are looking at uh, a map of the different stars and suns that they know of. And he's naming off some of them. And one of the suns is named Wolf 359. Mm-hmm. He's I'm like, so yeah, I mean, I, I get the reference, but it actually took me out of the story for a second. <laughs> Because at another point, the main character, he's on a Chinese aircraft carrier, and he's being led through the corridors by a soldier or a sailor. And the, those, the, the narrative is written in the first person. And he says, the sailor led me through a series of twisty passages all alike. And I'm like, that is actually a reference to Zork, the Infocom <laughs> text adventure game. I'm like, I, again, I get the reference, but... It stopped me dead in my tracks when I read this. I was like, I stared at it like, really? A Zork <laughs> reference? Uh, he's a total geek. He used to work at Activision Blizzard, too. <laughs> that I did not know. Huh. Long time now ago. There's, now, there's a name you and I haven't talked about in a while. Not in a whole day. But yeah, I've heard, I've, I have heard an interview with him. He sounds pretty his work sounds pretty cool. I have no idea if he's a cool person. Um, but it's kind of like you and I were talking about yesterday about using other media for inspiration. And I asked you, do the consumers of your media ever recognize your inspiration you say no never i'm like in this case yes always <laughs> um i mean some of those are very clearly for the truckies there and, and even other geeks it's i mean it can be fun but as you said totally take you out of it too like yeah. so weird um uh obo the character Owishakun was not in this episode, but there was a weird fish type creature at her con at the con. Oh yeah, I I didn't notice her absence, but I did notice that creature's presence. That was weird. Yeah, it was twice we saw that weird fish alien never seen before, and I don't know if I'll ever see again. I um, guess when your actors aren't available for shooting, you just CGI in a substitute. Yeah, or you know how the makeup department created something fun. Mm. Um and Reese, we got his some weird. We got some backstory for him. We talked a little, touched on it a bit, but it was so weird how they put it out there. He's like, Captain, can I take her on this mission? Sure, no problem. She says. And then when Book and Burnham are about to go into the prison, she's like, Reese, how's it going? And he pops up on his little hologram communicator, and he's like, It's going well. And here's my backstory. Okay, gotta go. Bye. <laughs> like it was so weird. You know what stood out to me in that moment was. The fact that his town was wiped out by a hurricane. And I was thinking to myself, that is as suspicious to me now as it was when that uh, teenage girl was on the NCC 1701D, not knowing that she was a Q and her parents' home had been wiped out by a tornado. And Picard was like, that's very suspicious. We have weather control systems that should prevent tornadoes. But then I remembered. Reese comes from at least 100 years before TNG. Maybe they didn't have weather control systems by then. I mean, the whale probe uh, didn't, didn't, couldn't heal, handle that. Uh, maybe it was overloaded. But uh, right. yeah, uh, there was just, I, I enjoyed this episode, but there was a lot of weirdness in it. There was a lot of weirdness. How about I was entertained? <laughs> Are you not entertained? I was entertained, but there was a lot of weirdness. I feel like if I were to draw a graph of this season, it'd be like, the first episode at the top, and then it goes down a little bit for the second episode, and then it goes way down for the third episode, and that's been going back up ever since. The fourth episode is better. The fifth episode is better. But I feel like so far, this season has yet to live up to the standard set by the first two episodes, and that is disappointing. Even though I see the improvement, it's still... It's subpar. <laughs> something, something weird there. Like, like, we've been kind of all over the place talking about this on this episode. And I feel like it's because this episode was kind of all over the place, even if in its own individual scenes, they kind of make sense. But mm-hmm. did they really fit together? 
I don't think so a lot. Yeah. And I mean, this goes back to them doing a science experiment during an evacuation. Like, why are all these things happening at once? I feel like I know we've complained about the characters on Discovery not having enough backstory, not being developed about, especially in the first season or two, it being the Michael Burnham show. But I kind of feel like the pendulum might be swinging a little bit too much in the other direction. Or at least maybe not in the other wrong direction or or maybe not in a bad way. It's just not in a cohesive way. Like the first few episodes were of the season. That's a very good point. I like the way you put that. It's, it's not that there's too much. It's just not cohesive. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's very insightful. It was interesting. I mean, I would be interested. I, I mean, I tend to go back, watch these eventually again. As you can see, I still don't remember half the things that happened in some of these episodes, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe telling something else too. But um, yeah, this episode entertained a lot of weirdness. Hopefully mm. next episode will make more sense. <laughs> yeah. And we, uh, speaking of which, if we need Star Trek to watch in the meantime, I did confirm when I logged into Paramount Plus, both in Firefox and on my Apple TV, each one presented me with a notification that they now have live channels where you can watch Star Trek, just as you said. However, once I clicked past that notification on my Apple TV, I couldn't actually find the channel. (laughs) I went through all the menus and I went through the tabs and I I just couldn't find it. Interesting. Um, Anyway, I think that's all we have to say about the examples. Yeah, they made up examples of us. I don't know. This is just yeah. a, it oh, was an episode. And, and and one last thing, speaking of the examples, uh, the, the chancellor of that colony, or whatever his title was, uh, Burnham said, wherever you go now will be as a refugee. Well, a colony is an extension of an, an existing civilization. So you would think he would just go back to his homeworld. Yeah, which was, well, that's on the opposite side of the galaxy, according to the map that was in the beginning episode, maybe. I don't know. It was a weird, like, yeah, you just go home. <laughs> yeah, like like if I'm an expat living in Greece and a hurricane wipes out my house, that doesn't make me a refugee, as far as I understand. A refugee is when you're fleeing your own country. Yeah, uh, weirdness. Some anyway. weirdness. But I, I did like how pointed her statement was and that he just sort of, oh, shh crap i don't have a home anymore right right so i i appreciated the narrative function of that word choice i just don't think it was technically accurate the words were weirded weird yeah the words were weirded <laughs> and that's what we do on transport lock is we weird words about discovery and until the next episode <laughs> uh, punch it chewy <laughs> that was weird <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. <laughs>